0: Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Laymiller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. The sexual exploits of high school and college students have been depicted in the movies and on television for decades. But when people today look back at the popular films and shows of 10, 20, 30, and 40 years ago, they are often completely aghast at the sex scenes. Through our modern lens, they frequently read as coercion, harassment, date rape, or violence. For example, in the popular 1980s film Revenge of the Nerds, there's a scene where one of the male characters, Lewis, deceives a woman named Betty into having sex with him by wearing a mask he had stolen from Betty's boyfriend. When the deception is revealed, Betty finds herself pleasantly surprised. She thought the sex was great. She ends up falling for Lewis, and they start dating. While 80s audiences apparently didn't seem to give this a second thought, audiences today see it as a rape by deception and think that Betty's reaction was problematic because it could be read as excusing the behavior. A scene like that in a film today would just not fly. Modern films have thankfully gotten better at depicting consent and making sure that date rape isn't a joking matter. But consent remains an elusive ideal, and one that Hollywood still struggles to get right. So, let's talk about it. In this show, we're going to explore how consent culture is shaping the way that youth sexuality is depicted in the media and the lens through which we analyze our media. We're also going to talk about how movies and TV shows can be useful teaching tools for parents and sex educators, as well as consider some good and bad media examples. For today's show, I am joined by Dr. Michelle Meek a writer, filmmaker, professor, and entrepreneur. She is an assistant professor in the communication studies department at Bridgewater State University. Her most recent book, Consent Culture in Teen Films, Adolescent Sexuality in US Movies, delves into the history of adolescent sexuality on screen. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Stick around, and we're gonna jump in right after the break. Become a certified sex educator, counselor, or therapist with the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. MSTi offers 20 certification options in areas including medical sexology, kink, neurodiversity, and LGBTQIA affirmative therapy. They also offer a PhD program in clinical sexology that can be completed in two years and meets all ASEC certification requirements. All programs can be completed 100% online and are flexible and customizable to fit your schedule. You can take live courses the third weekend of each month and choose from over 300 archive workshops taught by renowned experts in the field. For more information, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. Hi, Michelle, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast.
1: Hi, how are you?
0: Doing well. Thank you so much for joining me. So, you've just published a book that explores consent culture and the history of adolescent sexuality in film. I think this is such an interesting topic because I've personally seen such a huge evolution in how teen sexuality is portrayed in the media in my lifetime. I mean, as a kid, the shows and movies I watched with teen characters didn't really delve into sexuality at all. You know, at most, it was centered around having a first kiss and getting a boyfriend or girlfriend. But then shows like Dawson's Creek came along that started to go into greater depth on sexuality issues. And then today, you've got shows like Sex Education, where teens are really grappling with complex issues of sexual identity and exploring their sexuality. So what was your inspiration for writing this book? What drew you to this area?
1: Well, you know, when you think back on your career, you start to see some patterns. And I've always been interested in agency and sexuality. And I think in particular, I have always been interested in thoughts around youth and sexuality. I've just noticed in our culture how You know, like you mentioned, things change over time. And yet, I think to some degree, some things stay the same in ways that are surprising. I think we still have a very kind of toxic connection between youth and sexuality, even in 2023. So I'm kind of interested in understanding why that is and investigating that through this thread of teen films over time.
0: Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And you're so right that, while lots of things do change, some things don't. And there certainly are many threads where you can still see over time, things haven't changed or progressed all that much. But in other ways, it is drastically different. So in your book, you examine how consent culture has impacted the way that adolescent sexuality is portrayed in the movies. So what do you mean when you say the term consent culture? What are we talking about here?
1: Well, it's always very difficult to define terms like this, but in general, I see consent culture as a real response to rape culture. It's the idea that the antidote to non-consensual encounters of any kind, and obviously sexual encounters are part of this, is to really highlight and emphasize consent in every interaction that we have. And so that's where it becomes... Consent culture, because it's sort of a pervasive attitude of consent being a priority in different interactions, so that we're always making sure that people are informed and enthusiastic about the actions that they're participating in, in particular sexual ones. I appreciate
0: that explanation, but it also raises the question of also, what do we mean when it comes to consent and how is that defined? So in my human sexuality textbook, I have this whole section on consent and what it means. And different people have different definitions. And there's also a lot of variability in legal definitions of consent. You know, in some state legal codes, they don't even define what consent is. And you have a whole section in your book where you talk about this issue as well, that consent is actually kind of this murky term in some ways where, you know, what does it mean? There are so many different models of consent. So just as another definitional question, how do you define or think of consent?
1: Well, this is where we get into some of the more thorny issues around consent. So when you talk in the abstracts, nobody is really against consent, right? I mean, that all sounds great in theory. We should all want to be consenting to the interactions that we have. The problem is how do we define consent, as you said? So consent can be defined either or both as what we think or how we feel or what we say and do. And so there's this distinction between kind of the subjective and the performative aspects of consent. And the problem that we have in our sort of day to day interactions around consent is that very often, actually, the performative and the subjective are not lining up the way that we sort of imagine or fantasize that they should magically do so. And so that's where we get into situations where. And it also has to do with, you know, do you consent now to something that might occur later? How do you feel in the moment? And how do you feel after the moment? Those are all also part of consent that create way more complexities than we kind of acknowledge in our day to day conversations around consent.
0: Yeah, I love that answer. And I think that distinction between the subjective component of consent, the way that you feel, versus the performative one is a really big issue in all of this. I think in a lot of these models of consent, they emphasize the value of the performative aspect. You know, it's something like enthusiastic consent where everybody has to be super excited about everything that they're doing all along the way you know, that is performative. It doesn't come naturally to a lot of people. And if you look at research on how most consent is actually communicated, most of it is nonverbal. It doesn't take that form. And so that's where whenever I give talks on consent to college audiences, we talk about, you know, how this thing might be the gold standard in terms of what it should look like, but that's not actually what most people do. And so a lot of sexual activity happens in kind of this gray zone, which we can call passive consent, where you don't have all of the explicit overt indicators of consent. And so that's where we really need to have these complex and difficult conversations. So I really appreciate you bringing all of this to light in the work that you do. So going back to the way that teens and sex are shown in the film, in movies and on TV, that's changed a lot over time. And the popular tropes that we saw in the past are now being reevaluated. I mean, the internet is full of listicles and countdowns of like the most problematic sex scenes from the 80s and the 90s and the early aughts. So can you give us some examples of the ways in which consent culture has impacted how adolescent sexuality is portrayed in the media and also how this has shifted the lens through which we're viewing these depictions?
1: Yeah. So would it be helpful here for me to talk a little bit about past films and then go into kind of more contemporary films? Is that sort of what you're thinking? Okay. So I think perhaps one of the low points of depictions of teen sexuality came in the 70s and 80s, where the way I would kind of define it would be that rape culture was really being exhibited very blatantly in some of these films. So it's not to say that rape culture didn't exist before the 70s and 80s. Of course it did. But non-consent was almost celebrated in some of these films. So one of the ready examples that many people have seen is a film like 16 Candles, which Molly Ringwald herself has written about, where the main crush, Jake, ends up giving away his girlfriend, who he's no longer interested in, to another boy, they're both intoxicated, and he sort of hands her over, completely drunk out of her mind, to another boy and says, have fun, you know, knowing full well that this other boy wants desperately to lose his virginity and that Carolyn is sort of an easy target. And the aftermath of that is that they both wake up in the car. They're not sure exactly what happened, but it's all okay because they're like, it probably was fun, so it's not a big deal. So that was what many of us sort of grew up watching and understanding You know, whether we agreed with that being okay or not. That was the message that we were getting was that it was okay. And I think that what caused a lot of reevaluation of how not just youth, but all of these kinds of depictions were being presented in movies, were really, okay, wait a second. Like, that's not okay to say that consent existed because after the fact, you said, okay, I guess that wasn't a problem, you know, even though you were not even conscious to consent. So this in this reevaluation of some of these movies, I think it really became important to focus on First, no means no, but then second, yes means yes, where, wait, we want to make sure that we are portraying situations and celebrating situations where youth are kind of coming into a sexual encounter with more knowledge and mutual interest and and so forth. But of course, the fact is that teen films, whether or not they're representing actual teen lives or not, is another whole nother conversation. they are presenting complex sexual interactions, and many of them don't, to this day, portray kind of neat consensual interactions. Instead, they take consent into account, for sure, but at the same time, they are also revealing how complex sexual encounters can be and consent can be you know, in sort of the real world. I mean, this is not even the real world, it's teen films, but you're seeing, okay, it's not as straightforward as we like to talk about.
0: Yeah, definitely not as straightforward. <laughs> I, don't know
1: if was, I thought that was clear.
0: <laughs> no, it was. That makes total sense to me. Now, much has been said and written about how the popular media influences the way that we approach our own sex lives and relationships. But different studies have pointed to different conclusions. Some people say that films, TV, advertisements, and video games have this huge impact on behavior, whereas others say it's actually quite small. So I'm curious, you know, for somebody who does research in media and you know how it impacts us what's your take on this how does media exposure affect young viewers when it comes to things like sexuality and relationships
1: well i think it's important first to realize that youth just like adults are not blank slates that are written upon by anyone Influence, including the media, movies, and television. And I also think it's important to recognize that films about youth are made by adults, sometimes for adults, and played by adults often. So, what they have to do with actual youth is a little bit questionable, to say the least. But I do think that we as adults and youth, too, get a lot of assumptions about what we would call the sexual script from mass culture, including movies and television. And so we kind of learn through those interactions that we're watching, what is normative? Who makes the first move? What's on the table and what's off the table? Where are the lines drawn? What kinds of boundaries are there? What's acceptable, what's not acceptable? And when you see over time, interactions, the way they're just depicted changing, what you're seeing really is our sexual scripts kind of being revised and amended and shaped, rethought. And so I think they're very important in that sense that what we do as individuals is we use those sexual scripts in interpersonal scenarios with others, not to say they're word for word, but we sort of know, okay, that's what's normative. Now here I am interacting with someone else, but I come with it with my own ideas about that too. And so I'm kind of shaping those sexual scripts as I go along in these interpersonal scenarios. And then I develop new ideas about whether what I saw was accurate or or not, or whether I agree with it or not, but they are influential in that way. But it's not just like A causes B. (laughs) It's not quite that straightforward, of course.
0: Yeah, and nothing with human sexuality is ever quite that straightforward. It's always this complex interaction of the person and the environment. And I think when you think about something like popular media, yes, to some extent that might influence us in terms of how we approach sexual relationships, but it's also a reflection of where the culture is at the time. And so media is influenced by what people are doing now. So it's kind of a bi-directional relationship when we're talking about these effects and impacts.
1: That is so true. And I think that's where youth play an important role too, because the media is a, you know, sort of about them. They're growing up seeing this media that's supposedly about them, but they haven't made it, right? And so then when they grow up and they're the ones producing the media, they're now reshaping based on their own experiences. And so I like to say almost like, what we're watching about youth is often delayed. We're seeing what actually was true, maybe about youth a couple of decades ago, but it absolutely is bi directional, as you said.
0: Yeah. And I think that's such an important point that, you know, what we're watching is not movies and TV shows made by teens, for teens, starring teens. You know, in most cases, you're talking about adults who are writing the scripts, maybe informed by their own lived experiences maybe informed by the particular environment in which they live, or maybe even through the lens of, you know, their own kids, their own interactions with them. And then, you know, adults producing it, adults starring in it. You know, you can't depict minors engaging in, sexual relationships or encounters on screen right because that's its own other set of issues i actually had a hollywood intimacy coordinator on the show a few episodes back and we talked about you know some of the challenges when it comes to portraying sexuality in general on screen but if you're talking about for minors well then you need to have adults playing them instead in order to comply with legal requirements and so forth and so you know that becomes a whole other issue of how realistic is what it is that you're depicting you know i remember in the 90s watching beverly hills 90210 and one of the characters on there was in her like mid-30s and she's playing you know like a high school junior and you know it's just how accurate is this what we're seeing and i think that's just important context to keep in mind in all of this
1: I think that's exactly right and um one of the films that I write about the diary of a teenage girl you know is about a 15-year-old who gets into a sexual relationship with her mother's adult boyfriend i think he's in his late 30s but of course the actress playing that character was i think 22 at the time so when we see a movie like that we're really seeing what it looks like for a 20-something-year-old to be with a 30-something-year-old. We're not really seeing what it is for a 15-year-old to be with a 30-year-old man. And that changes our perception of that story in ways that could potentially be problematic. I actually really like the film, and I'm amazed by the bravery of the writer and director, but at the same time, I feel like this isn't exactly showing what that would look like, and we might have different thoughts about it if we were actually seeing it with the ages involved in the film.
0: Yeah, I think that's really an important point because maybe you're inferring that, you know, a 15-year-old is more adult than they really are. And yes, guess that could have an important impact on the way that you're interpreting that particular scene. For most of us, getting good at sex is something we have to learn all on our own. After all, it's not the kind of thing that's covered in traditional sex education. However, developing your sexual skills is something that's really important because not only can it make sex more pleasurable for everyone, but it can also deepen intimacy and help to boost your sexual self-confidence. This is where Beducated can help. Beducated brings pleasure-based sex ed directly into your bedroom. Featuring more than 100 online courses taught by the experts, Beducated is a safe space for everyone to explore their sexuality without judgment, regardless of their gender, sexual orientation, or relationship status. Get started today by signing up for Beducated's free oral sex video training. A lot of people approach oral sex the same exact way every time, but there are actually countless ways to do it. If you've never tried it another way, you might very well be missing out. This course will teach you what you need to know to become an oral sex virtuoso. You'll learn how to become a skilled and confident oral lover, as well as how to deepen communication, connection, and intimacy with a partner. You'll also learn how to feel safe how to love yourself, and how to surrender to pleasure. The video content is inclusive, it provides actionable tips, and it's something you can explore on your own or together with a partner. Make oral sex your superpower with Beducated. Check the show notes for the link to sign up for Beducated's free online training to take your oral skills to the next level. Enjoy. Now, when it comes to educating your own kids about sex, this is something that a lot of parents really struggle with. And we know that school-based sex ed is not filling in the gaps well enough. So it really is important for parents to find ways of having these conversations with their kids. And media might be one way of making that a little bit easier. So how can parents use television and film as teachable moments? to have the talk with their kids about things like consent and healthy relationships.
1: Well, you're exactly right, first of all, that the sex education that's done at schools is pathetic, to say the (laughs) least. Even in the best case scenario, youth are really just getting the bare bones of information about maybe STDs and reproduction. I mean, that's it. So I think that it really is actually on parents to take up this cause on an individual basis because it's just become so challenging for schools to take this up for many reasons. And yet I, when I've talked to parents about this, you know they're often shy about bringing it up. They're not sure when to bring it up, how to bring it up. And I think that movies and television are such an easy way of starting this conversation and also making it about someone else. So that you're not really sitting your child down to say, okay, there's something I need to tell you. <laughs> Here's my PowerPoint presentation. You know, <laughs> like it, we don't have to do that. Right. So instead it's watching movies and television together and taking the time to respond to those different things that you're seeing. I've watched tons of teen films and also shows with both of my kids. And I often have conversations with them when we see something and I think, oh, wow, that was depicting something that kind of made me uncomfortable. And so I want to explain why that made me uncomfortable. But I might ask them too, like, what did you think about that situation? Because sometimes I find out that they actually already think exactly how I would hope they would think in that situation. Um, and then that can be a, a conversation starter. I've even been sitting with a, one of my kids where something has come up and I've said, do you know what that means? And they say, no. And I explain it. Those are ways of, you know, not to say you shouldn't have any talk outside of movies and television. I think you should, but I think it, it can be a good way of just making it like sex is, is natural. It's part of human existence. It's not a topic to be avoided or ashamed about. Even with your kids, kids should be comfortable talking to their parents about sex. I mean, honestly, if they're not going to come to you for information, where are they going to go? So, no, you know, knowing that you're Comfortable talking about it with them is going to make them comfortable talking about it with you, and really, what could be more important than that? So, that's kind of how I look at it,
0: yeah. And I really think this is a great way of just kind of opening the door to having those conversations. I mean, I can even think of one example in my life where you know, as a kid, I was watching a movie with my parents specifically it was a mel brooks film i think it might have been the silent movie and there's this scene where you've got a bunch of men in suits sitting in a boardroom with this table in front of them and this beautiful woman walks into the room and the table lifts up and my parents just like burst out laughing and i had no idea what was you know why was that funny and so they paused the movie and you know i asked like what why was that funny and so my dad tried to explain, well, you know, when this woman walked in, the men got horny and the table lifted up. And I'm like, what does horny mean? <laughs> you know, so, you know, it led to this whole conversation about, okay, like just trying to understand sexuality in context. And it's like, okay, that was a, a teachable moment. I know it was awkward for my parents, but, you know, I learned something from it.
1: Right. And I think it might be awkward at first, but once you start having those conversations, I think it becomes less awkward too. So, I mean, one of the the problems I see just in general is that people don't talk about sex that much, even as adults, right? I mean, friends don't always talk about sex with each other. And the fact that we've made it into this taboo, unspoken thing in society is just ridiculous and unnecessary, in my opinion. And the more we kind of just open the door to that and have these kinds of conversations just allow us to be more informed when we go into those situations ourselves. And and I'll say too, like, especially with children around not just sex and consent, but sexuality and gender, you know, I mean, I think that being open to these kinds of conversations with your children so that you're not one of those parents who finds out five years later that, you know, your kid's been... Harboring these thoughts or feelings that they've never shared with you. I mean, why does that happen? That happens because they don't feel that you've opened that door to these conversations, and that can be so hard both ways. It's hard for parents. It's hard for children, right? Um, so the more that you can kind of open that door and and make it clear, the better. And the other thing I'd say is it is so important to start younger than you think. And this is where it's really challenging, I think, for some parents because. I've spoken to some parents since, like their children are like fifteen. (laughs) Like I'm like, it's wait. I'm not that it's ever too late, but they probably already know a lot more than you think they do at fifteen, right? Or they think they do. So I would say that really. Early is better, and I remember at one point being at a doctor's office with my kid, and and the doctor saying something like, "Oh, no one's allowed to look down there except the your parents and the doctor or something." And I, I remember le- when they left, I said no one's allowed to do anything unless, you know, it's that this is for you and not even a parent or a doctor. I mean, those are the people that abuse children. Actually, starting young with some of these conversations are important because it helps protect children. And so if we never bring it up and make it clear that, even as youth, they deserve privacy, they deserve bodily autonomy. We need to get those points across. And trust me, the schools are not going to do that because they are terrified to have any conversation with a youth before they're in late middle school or high school. And these conversations have to happen much younger. Children are abused as young children. And in order for to protect them, we need to make sure that they have some kind of knowledge about what things they need to even be protected from, and feel comfortable and confident coming to you as uh, someone who they can trust and will believe them.
0: Yeah, so many important points there. Now, do you have any specific examples of films or media that you would recommend as teaching tools? So what are some productions that have either gotten it right or that just otherwise might serve as really good teachable moments?
1: Well, I'll use um, one good and one bad example. (laughs) How's that? A little bit of both. Sounds good. (laughs) So one of the most popular teen films on Netflix was The Kissing Booth. And I would say that was a great conversation starter for some of the things that I would say we normalize but actually aren't that okay. The story depicts a kind of violent, compulsive boy who um, the lead girl has a crush on and develops a relationship with. And there's one scene in particular where she's at a party and another boy is trying to drag her off to some kind of like a hot tub and she's saying no and the boy is not listening. And so this other boy, Noah, who's kind of always getting in fights with other kids, steps in to, quote, save her. He yells, she said no, you know, hands off, right? So you think, okay, he's the savior here, right? So then what happens is, he follows her off after he gets in a fight with this boy. So he actually gets into a physical fight with this boy once again. And she gets tired of that situation and walks off. And he follows her. And at one point, he slams his hand down on the car, tells her to get in the car as she's, she's saying no or walking away. He slams his hand down on the car so violently that she jumps and says, you know, get in the car. Then he says, please and so she softens at that point and does get in the car and to me this is really a moment where the film is telling us one thing but i think it's an opportunity for as parents us to intervene and tell our children something else so the the film is sort of telling us that he's an appealing character. He's someone who loves her and protects her. She needs him. What would she do without him? Whereas I kind of see it more as this is violent and controlling behavior that should be a red flag. And traditionally, we know doesn't get better, generally gets worse. And so I think that having those kinds of conversations with youth in a film like that is a great starting point. So that's kind of a watch this together knowing that there's moments when you're going to have to step in and <laughs> say what you think about it or ask your your child what they think about it and they might already agree with you. Then a movie that I really enjoyed that I think depicts sex and sexuality so positively is a movie called Princess Sid, Cyd, C-Y-D, which I don't think many people have, have seen. It's a little bit under the radar, but it's a film that depicts a girl's coming of age one summer where she goes to visit her aunt, and she has sexual experiences with a boy and with a kind of gender-diverse girl. But the whole thing is really honestly presented as very normative and affirming. And so you get this idea of the span of gender and sexuality in a way that you just don't see in a lot of films. Both of those films really provide opportunities for conversations in different ways.
0: Yeah. And I like what you say about how you can use films that have better or maybe more accurate depictions of sexuality and gender versus, you know, those that Maybe are problematic in some way, and you can use them both as teachable moments. They can be ways where you can sit down and say, for example, what? What was wrong with the scene? Did you see anything that, you know, might (laughs) or how do you feel about it? Right. So that can be just an easy opening point for kind of having these discussions and conversations. And I think it's so important that it's not just about sex. It's about healthy relationships and how we relate to one another and what you should be looking out for in terms of the way that other people treat you, you know sex education isn't just about sex. It's also about relationships. And I think that's a huge component that all too often is neglected. And maybe we need to rebrand it and call it sex and relationship education because relationships are really foundational and fundamental when it comes to talking about sex.
1: Absolutely. And that's why I bring up the example of the kissing booth, because the truth is that when she consents after he's gotten her in the car in this way. And then she asks to be taken home and he's, he doesn't drive her home. He drives her to some lookout spot and she realizes on the ride, this isn't the way home. Um, So, you know, when she consents then to having sex with him, yes, it's affirmative consent. She said yes. We don't see it as assault, and I don't either, really, but I also am really uncomfortable with the fact that she said yes after he's kind of bullied her into the car, not taken her home as she asked. Something is amiss here, clearly.
0: Yeah. And again, just highlights how these could be such valuable, teachable moments for parents talking to their kids, but also could potentially be useful for sex educators in the classroom who want to make the material more relevant to the kids. So if you can relate it to the media that they're consuming or watching, you might have more impact when it comes to your messaging.
1: Absolutely. And it, it's interesting to have these conversations with college or high school students. Or I, I really only work with college students, but I would imagine it even younger because I've had conversations with students about that scene in The Kissing Booth, and many of them watched, had seen the film already and had opinions about it and liked the character of Noah, right? Because he's he is presented as a very appealing character. And so really getting into it with students like, okay, well, what is problematic about this and why? And, you know, how would you feel if this was someone treating your friend that way? And would they feel differently about that? And also it's a sort of an exercise in media literacy. So, you know, I think you're exactly right that we don't have to wait for just these perfect examples, which of which there are almost none. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) to be frank. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, I could criticize probably anything. Um, It's a lot harder to make movies than it is to criticize movies, I should say. You know, so there's always something a little bit amiss, and that offers an opportunity to have those conversations. And, And don't be surprised if your child or your students disagree with you. And that can be just as productive and offer an opportunity For you to learn why are they finding this character compelling? What does that mean? How do we really dig into this? You know, so everyone does some learning in that situation.
0: Yeah, I appreciate everything that you just said there. And as a former professional film critic, I can say it is easy to criticize films. All too easy because there are lots of things that could be changed.
1: Absolutely. And I will say, you know, as someone who's also written and directed movies, being on the other side of that is so much more challenging because you're thinking about the meaning that you're making. And, you know, that becomes such a heavy concept and it's almost impossible to know what people will derive out of the work that you produce. And it also changes over time, right? So I have tremendous respect for anyone, honestly, who attempts to write and direct a movie. And, and I, I went into this because I love movies and I enjoy watching them even when I disagree with them. So, you know, some of my favorite movies are movies that make me deeply uncomfortable in some ways you know, I live with that ambiguity.
0: Yep. (laughs) Sometimes that is the most interesting place to live. Yep. Thank you for this amazing conversation, Michelle. It was really a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and get a copy of your recent book?
1: Absolutely. So I have a website, michellemeek.com. So it's dot kcom And you can find on there all of my books, links to different films and my writings, and you can reach out to me there too.
0: Perfect. And I'll be sure to include links to all of that in the show notes.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate having you here. This was fun. And thanks to my listeners to keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, sex and psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin lay Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also be sure to check out my book. Tell me what you want. Thanks again for listening until next time.